Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this study is really one principle that we will unpack in three phrases. Um, and it, will, it can, if you will allow it, it can form a, I think, a most powerful leadership principle that is applicable pervasively. In other words, there are uh, church leadership, corporate leadership, organizational leadership, applications of what we're going to talk about. There are parental applications. I mean, anywhere you would, you would need to lead in any context, um, you can apply what we're going to talk about to that situation. And uh, so with that, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to give you the title of, of the message. It simply influence trumps authority. Influence trumps authority, and I used the word trump long before he ran for president, okay? Influence trumps authority. Now, I need to caveat this by saying I believe in authority. I believe in the authority of Jesus Christ. I believe that he constructs authority structures in our lives for the thriving of, of humanity, for the thriving of his people, uh, whether that's civil government or whether that's the home or the church. Um, I do not believe that, that any one man in a position of authority has the right to usurp God's authority or overreach his own authority. And we're going to see that uh, in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. But the question I want you to kind of mull over with me is, how did the Apostle Paul behave himself in a way that became so fruitful? How did the Apostle Paul, what was his leadership strategy? How did he go into a city that was pagan with a new message of a resurrected king and an eternal gospel? And how did he walk out of that city with a group of believers in place, growing and going forward in God's grace, in perpetuating the gospel. What did he leverage um, to, to, to see that happen? Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, we know that in, in this passage, Paul is essentially, in his absence, writing back to Thessalonica and kind of defending his ministry. But in doing it, he, he establishes for us a, an incredible approach to ministry. Um, for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Neither at any time 
Used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. By the way, this is a tremendous parenting passage as much as it is a spiritual leadership passage. You'll see this right here and in a second. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being a affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, not just our duty, you know, not just putting out the the message and being done, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, here it is, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Read verse 13 with me out loud. Ready, go. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, guide my words. Let me be clear and succinct with the time remaining. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 22 years of my life, I was engaged in, still am to a great degree, but engaged in what I would call family ministry. Seventh grade up through about 40-year-old singles. I used to tell the people in our youth group, to get away from me, you have to either die or get married, you know. And, and even then, they, want, they were coming to me for marriage counseling and stuff after they got married. So we had a lot of, a lot, hundreds and hundreds of, of counseling and conversations and, and lots of time and exposure to families. And there was this recurring event that became so familiar and so recurring there would be a family with a struggling teenager. Lots of teen- all of our teenagers struggle at some point. Um, and they would, they would, it would get so bad it, that they would finally call the pastor, in my, in my case, the youth pastor. And by the way, if, if they get to that point where they're calling you, just know this, like you're the last possible option, okay? They have, they're not calling you on the front end of the problem like, hey, a little thing cropped up. Can you give us a little coaching? no. This is right before it's going to nuclear destruct, okay? So you're the last, because the last thing they want to do is drag themselves into your office and absorb all that embarrassment, okay? So they would come into my office with this child who would rather have his head removed or his, all of his teeth pulled or something, okay? And so he's just sitting there like, I, this is misery, sheer misery. And mom and dad's mentality was something like this. Um, they would then now for 30 or 45 minutes begin to tell me all of the issues and problems with this teenager in the teenager's presence. You know, this is all falling apart. This is, and it all rebellious. He's so rebellious, rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And they were right. This is a problem of rebellion. I get it. But they were so, they were, they generally, um, our, our thinking when it comes to leadership is it's a very thinly equipped toolbox, they only had one toolbox to assess what they were doing, and that toolbox had really one, one diagnosis, and that was rebellion. 
and there was one answer. Like, like when they go to the closet of problem solving, they only had one tool. It was a baseball bat called authority. So they would pull out the baseball bat of authority, and they would, they would whack away on the will of this child. Do this, do this, do this. You're disobedient, you're disobedient, you're disobedient. Children obey your parents. And they're whack. And by the way, all that's good and fine. It's all scriptural. It's all important. But it's, it's um, i got to continue. They would just be whacking away, to use Mark's deal here, behavior. Simply trying to reshape behavior. And their thinking was very deficient in this way. This child is disruptive to our lives. Uh, you know, I, our, my life has become problematic. I'm trying to work and pay bills, and, 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 now, and now I got a rebel. And they, they would think very short-term. They're embarrassed. Their child is struggling. Now they're embarrassed. Uh, they're getting embarrassed amongst their peers at church. You know, like I'm a bad parent, and all the other parents have it together. And, and they lose perspective on this. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's having a tough time raising their family. This is common. And then they would, so their, their assessment and dealing with the problem was simply um, insufficient in this moment until they finally are giving up, bringing the child to me. And their idea is you're the paid youth pastor. You are the guy that's supposed to open your desk drawer, pull out a you know, little jar of fairy dust and sprinkle it on my child and fix my child so that I can get back to my normal life, you know. Make my child do what I cannot make my child do. Well, the way this would go is after a few minutes, this kid's just dying a thousand deaths with his parents telling, him, telling me how bad this kid is. It works with guys and girls, by the way. I'd say to the parents, would you all step out for a few minutes? Let me just, let's call him Joey. Let me talk to Joey for a few minutes. So they would step out, and I'd, I'd sit back in my chair, and I'd try to let the, the air, you know, kind of replenish itself in the room. And, and I, you know, I wanted to give this kid something to calm him down and kind of, I'd say, so Joey, um, I know this really stinks, doesn't it? He'd go, yeah. You know, and I'd say, so do you, do you love your parents? Yeah. Do your parents love you? Yeah. Do your parents like you? No. <laughs> do you like your parents? No. Was there a time you used to be close to your parents? And about then the kid would look up at me like, okay, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. And suddenly, I didn't pick up the same baseball bat that he's expecting me to pick up. And, and he would start to open up and have a conversation. I said, look, Joey, look, let's put all that aside. I know you're having a tough time. It's obvious. I know life's miserable right now. Let's just get real. Um, were you ever close to your mom and dad? Oh, yeah. When? Well, I was in fifth grade. It, it's all the same. Fifth, sixth, seventh grade, they were close. Seventh, eighth, ninth grade, it all broke apart. Tenth grade, they're having a bad time. The, the hope is you, you intervene and... And, and can reassemble this before the kid totally self-destructs, or even after he self-destructs, that you can reclaim that kid with the grace of the gospel. Haven't we seen hundreds and hundreds of those stories? So there's, there's always hope. You know, there's, it's never hopeless. Jesus resurrected, right? So after a few minutes, it was very clear to me that these parents had authority, but no longer had influence. And so, therefore, their authority was neutralized. Their authority was of absolutely no use, practically, in transforming or reclaiming the behavior of the child. Now, 
Their authority was useful in this sense. Satan has to go through them to get to the child in many respects. Okay? Satan uh, will leverage their vacating of the hedge if they become passive or disengaged. But my point is, the child is not going to be won by the expression of authoritarian rule. That's actually perpetuating the problem. The child is now at a place in life where commands simply harden the will even more. Now, is that a healthy place? No. Is it a dangerous place? Yes. Is it the wrong place to be? Yes. So what are we to do? Yell louder? Scream longer? Um, excommunicate them from the family? I mean, just get, keep going back to the closet and getting a bigger baseball bat and a bigger baseball bat until we finally crush and totally blow up the whole relationship? Do you understand? There's another tool. Okay? There's another tool, and it's, in fact, in fact, more effective than the baseball bat. And it's a tool we all understand, but when it comes to relationship and relational leadership, whether it's organizational, whether it's local church, or whether it's familial, we have grossly underestimated the power of this tool, and we've grossly overestimated and overaccentuated the use of the baseball bat. Okay, so the baseball bat is the leveraging of authority, just keep this in your mind, whacking away on the will, obey, okay? Because by the time a kid is about 13 or 14, they've figured out they don't have to obey you. And so if you haven't convinced them with an argument that is logical and rational about why obedience makes sense, then your force is simply kind of a taunting mechanism that dares them to just disobey, okay? And it, it actually, at that age, it actually takes a rebel and deepens the rebellion. Like, by the time they're 15, if, if you don't have a conversant, uh, winning the heart, I trust mom and dad, let me say it this way. If your child hasn't granted you if your employee hasn't granted you influence, then your authority can be neutralized by just the sheer rejection of it. So this kid has essentially, in his heart and mind, taken the authority of his parents and turned the switch off. That's wrong, but it's real. And this kid has said, I don't have to do what you say. And I am going to express that I am now adultish enough to resist you. Now, we know that's foolish. If what you're asking and commanding or leading is in their best interest, we know it's blind and it's ignorant. But the standoff of the will only gets further and further fueled by the beating of the baseball bat, all right? Um, ah, so many roads I don't want to go down. Let me give you the principles. Let me just dive into number one. I'm going to give you three statements, and we'll build on these, okay? Number one principle is authenticity produces credibility. Authenticity produces credibility. 
in verses 1 through 6, you can go back through it. 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul basically says this, I was real. There was no pretense. There was no impure motives. There was no backstory. I didn't play politics. Uh, There was no ulterior motives here. I came to you with much suffering. I had nothing to gain. There was no uh, end goal of how to leverage or exploit you. He's saying it was totally pure. It was totally real. So Paul goes into a city where he knows nobody, to our knowledge. He goes into a city that doesn't know Jesus. There's no uh, a foregone you know, Judeo-Christian worldview. It's a pagan environment. He goes in with an outrageous message about a resurrected Savior. And he wins people. And isn't this the word we use? Winning souls. Winning people. But we've lost the idea to some degree when it comes to authority. We've lost the concept of winning the heart. And we have, I think, in, in seeing it in so many perspectives, I think we go to the closet and grab the bat of authority and yield the bat of authority, wield the bat of authority wrongly too often, and we miss a much more powerful tool. So Paul says, look, I was real. I lived authentically. You didn't know me. I was a stranger. So I came in loving. Did, did, help me out here. Talk to me. Did the Apostle Paul have authority? Yes. What do we call the kind of authority that he had? Apostolic authority. That's pretty epic. Nobody in this room has apostolic authority. So, I mean... If there's ever a guy that could leverage the bat of authority, he had a pretty big baseball bat. And I'm not saying he never leveraged it. We could go to places of Scripture where he leveraged it, but usually he would, he would open the closet, say, see, and then close it again. Hey, by the way, I could, see, and then, but, but, but I love you. You get it? So he had authority, but he didn't see authority as simply a tool to wield to coerce behavior out of people. Why? Because he wasn't just going after behavior. He was going after heart transformation. And so many times in ministry and in leadership, corporate and spiritual and in family, we're simply going after behavior. And you can, in a short term, for a short time, when your children are little, uh, or organizationally in different ways, you can win the behavioral battle with power, but you cannot win that long term with power. You win it long term with authenticity, with influence. And we're talking right now about how to build influence. Listen, if you don't have influence, you have nothing. If you, there's so many different ways to say this. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. The the, the foundational principle under that that loving concept is influence. I'm going to win my way into your heart by loving you unconditionally. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Hey, if you've been saved any length of time, why are you in the ministry, by the way? Because Jesus won your heart. You you, You volunteered. You surrendered. Yeah, he called you, but... Ultimately, you said, this is in service to the one who has won my heart. That's how much I love him. And whenever your ministry becomes duty-driven 
or obligation-driven or, you know, behavior-driven, you start to die a slow death. That is not sustainable in ministry because it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. And the only sustainable motivation for ministry is the love of Jesus Christ. And I might have seasons where I'm just doing my duty and I'm going through something, but, but duty will not sustain me indefinitely. Obligation, I have to, that's not going to sustain me. Paul said, hey, we should give not of necessity nor grudgingly, but cheerfully. What's he saying? Our giving, our doing, our serving in the Christian life should never flow from obligation or from indebtedness, like we're trying to pay off our salvation. It should be driven by grace. The grace of God should compel me to do what I'm doing. So we get this in so many respects, but we lose it when it comes to relationships with people. But Paul said, look, I'm going into Thessalonica, and I'm not going to wield my apostolic authority. I'm not going to come waltzing into town saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. You have to do what I say. He didn't simply beat the baseball bat or beat the drum of authority. He lived with authenticity. And that authenticity gave him credibility. Now, you know, there is a connection, by the way, between the word authority and authenticity. Authentic. Authority, really, in its root form, references the real, final thing. The ultimate thing, okay? And Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. And so, Really, authority is really about expressing what is real, what is authentic, okay? And so if I'm going to express authority the way Jesus would want me to, it's going to look a lot like Jesus, all right? It's gonna, I'm going to lead and love a lot like Jesus because it's his authority I'm expressing. In my children's life, in my church family's life, in my staff's lives, it's, it's not my authority to wield as I wish. It's his authority handed to me as a stewardship to express on his behalf. And that's where authenticity comes in. So, authenticity produces credibility. Secondly, write this statement down. Credibility produces influence. Credibility produces influence. So then Paul, in verse 7 through 12, explains his ministry. Now, here's what's really, really cool about this. He goes into town suffering on their behalf, living and loving sacrificially, and these people who do not previously believe in Jesus for some reason decide to listen to him. They don't have to be coerced into listening. He doesn't have to demand or command them to listen. They decide to listen. They decide to open their hearts and open their minds and receive what he has to say, to hear it. Um, Here's one of the takeaways here. I have really no control over the level or quality of the influence that another person grants to me. I can't, for instance, I can't command you to give me influence into your heart and life. That's going to get me nowhere. These parents in my office can't command their son or daughter to listen to me. I mean, they can, but it's not going to get very far. Listen to me. Okay. Somewhere that kid has said, nope, credibility gone, influence off. 
I'm turning you off. And what this kid has said, essentially, without saying it is, I'm no longer allowing my mom and dad to influence me. Sometimes somebody will come and sit in the very back of your church. And I know pastors get ticked off that somebody comes once a month and sits in the back and is disengaged. You know how I look at that, though? That, I'm going to work with the influence that person gives me. That guy gives me one hour on Sundays once a month, I'm going to be a good steward of that influence. I'm not just going to lob grenades back at him and <laughs> passive-aggressively wait until he finds another church to attend once a month. had a young man in my youth group named Garen, G-A-R-A-N, Garen. Garen just called me not long ago. Garen was all through our youth group, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, my 11th, 12th grade class, then, then we broke it and I had a senior class. Garen sat in the far back corner. He came in after I started class. He, he left as soon as class was over. He came every Sunday, but he never talked to anyone, especially me. And I would have to, like, specifically start class late and kind of hide out until Garen came. And I, then I'd make a beeline try. Hey, Garen, how you doing, Garen? You know, and he'd fine. and put his head down. I mean, he was as disconnected a kid as I ever had in my youth group. And if you had asked me um, about Garen, you know, do I have any influence with Garen? I would have said zero, probably negative. Like I'm underwater with Garen. His parents are making him, I don't know the story, but I'm guessing his parents make him come. I'm guessing he hates every minute of it. I'm guessing he thinks I'm totally out of my mind and he's probably never heard anything I say. That would have been my assessment of it. Well, at the end of his senior year, Garen makes his way up to the podium one day after class. Shock of my life. Like, what is this? I didn't even know he could talk. Comes up to me and he says, hey, uh, Brother Schmidt, I'm going to college this year. And now we lived in Southern California. And, and he said, I got us a, a business scholarship to Berkeley. Now, Berkeley is an extremely liberal institution. So right there, I went from negative five with Garen to like negative 100. I knew I had no influence. I'd been teaching through de- decision-making principles and following the will of God. And I'm like, this kid comes up to me and basically is like, I'm going to the worst university in California in terms of liberalism. So I knew I had zero influence at that point. But here's, my pro- here's the problem I was making. I had pre-concluded by that one statement that Garen hadn't heard one thing I said. And his next statement convicted me. His next statement was, do you know of a church up there that I could go to? And God said to my spirit, you pharisaical, judgmental, preconclusive, you haven't even considered the work I might be doing in his heart and the influence you might have with him. I said, Garen, man, I'm really glad to hear you ask that. I said, I do know of a church. I said, here it is. I wrote it down, and he left. And I didn't hear from him for three months. Three months later, he's at Berkeley, and I get an email. And here's what the email said. Dear Brother Schmidt, I want you to know you've been like a father to me. <laughs> the child I've never talked to. I've been like a father to him. It wasn't long. Garen had, his email continues. I've gotten involved in discipleship at my church. I'm helping with a campus ministry. Pray for my roommate. He's homosexual, and I'm witnessing and sharing the gospel. I mean, I had kids in Christian college that weren't that mature. 
This is the kid that sat in the back corner and never said three words to me. And here's my takeaway. I thought I had no influence with Garen. And I would have wanted to leverage my authority to say, Garen, give me more influence. What I didn't realize is God had already given me influence. And Garen now has graduated from Bible college, walked away from his business degree, uh, and is planning to, he's getting married, he's planning to be a pastor. You've got to be, I think, those are the things that show me God just has this incredible sense of humor. He's like, (laughs) dumb old Schmidt, he never knows what I'm up to. (laughs) Never knows what I'm really doing. Okay, but here's my point. You cannot command or demand influence, and, and you can't always see it, okay? But you can steward it. You can steward it with authenticity. Authenticity and credibility produce that influence, and you don't even know you have it, but Clearly, Paul had it, and he defines it by all these terms, gentle among you, cherishing you, affectionately desirous of you. Um, I I say to these parents, I I would send this kid out of my office, bring the parents back in, and I'd say, um, when did you stop liking Joey? I just want to say to so many parents, it's obvious you love your kids, but it's as obvious that that you, it's just as obvious that you really do not like them, that you're really sick of them, that they really irritate you. Anyway, um, the idea of reconciling this family is how do I get this kid to extend his heart and grant his parents influence once again? And it can be done. The challenges we have in leadership or in conflict, interpersonal conflict with our church family is how can I build a ministry of influence? How can I use my positional authority Like Paul had a positional authority. How can I steward that in a way that is authentic and credible so that people say, I want to hear what you have to put into me? See, because this kid had said, I don't want to hear my parents anymore. Somewhere along the way, he canceled their credibility. Now, I don't know whether they canceled it or whether he canceled it. I don't know whether it's all in his head or whether it's a real val I mean, our kids know us at our worst, right? So usually it's a mixture. Sometimes there's parents that haven't been repentant and asking forgiveness when they've made mistakes, so the kid sees the duplicity, and then he concocts a a storyline, a narrative around the duplicity to, to rationalize and justify his own rebellion, okay? But here's my point. The story, the narrative in the kid's head is the reigning, ruling narrative. And to win the heart, we've got to deconstruct that narrative and reconstruct credibility on the authority side. So the kid, once again, says, here's my heart, authorities, teach me how to go. See, here's another illustration. I could say to my, I could say to my children all their teenage years, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. Bible says it's wrong. Save yourself for marriage. Guard your purity. I can declare truth and I can state law, but that doesn't necessarily win the argument or the heart. It simply hammers at behavior. Don't, don't, don't. And, in, and, and I, there is a case to be made that it actually sparks curiosity in the very thing you are opposing. Like, why? So here's another, here's another approach. 
hey, son, let me talk you through sexuality. Let me help you understand biblical sexuality and the beauty of it and the gift that it is and the creative, awesome wonder of God that gave us this gift. And let me tell you how broken and devastating it is out of the bounds of marriage. Let me tell you why it will wreck your life and crush people. And if you don't guard your heart and manage your hormones, the chemicals of your physiology will will, will breed wreckage in your life for generations to come if you don't guard and govern your chemicals, your hormones. But if you will go God's way and if you will bring it into these bounds and and experience it this way, that same destructive force becomes a life-giving, flourishing force. And, And here it is. I'm using my authority to steward my influence in the heart of my kid to make a case that is believable so that my kid, here it is. Can I borrow your chart? I am working on the thoughts and emotions that then produce behavior on their own. And I'm using my influence to win the heart. And the heart then behaves differently. You see, why? I got to close. Here's the third principle. Here's the third principle. Influence validates authority. Influence validates authority. Another way to say it is influence... um, it doesn't just validate it. it it's it like implements or makes it effectual or s- substantizes. I like to make up words. Okay, it it establishes the authority world as a place I want to live in, where you got a kid or you got an employee or you got an organizational structure or a church that doesn't. I don't want to live into this authority world. Why? Because I don't trust you. You're not credible. I don't give you influence, so I don't trust that your authority is going to be leveraged properly in my life. In this position, you have people who are saying to the Apostle Paul by the end of the account, we so trust you, we've granted you such a pervasive influence in our hearts that now we voluntarily live under authority, but it's not the Apostle Paul's authority they live under. It's the authority of the Word of God. So he says in verse 13, for this cause... I'm giving thanks because now you are living under the authority. You have received the word of God which effectually worketh in you. And you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now here it is. Wasn't the goal from day one, wasn't the apostle's goal to get them to live under the authority of the word of God? Yes, it was. He didn't waltz into town saying, I am a spiritual authority appointed by Jesus. This is the final authority. Get with the program and get under this umbrella. No, he went in saying, I love you sacrificially. I'm going to expend myself. I'm going to win credibility. I'm going to win your heart with my influence. And because you extend your heart to me, I'm going to steward that as a sacred trust. I will never exploit it. I will never betray it. I am going to steward that trust, and I'm going to pour into you the word of God. And when I walk away, you're not going to be codependent on my presence, my figurehead, my identity. You're not going to be codependent on my personality. No, you're going to be living voluntarily under the authority of the word of God. Why? Because Paul understood influence trumps authority. Last two statements. When it comes to parenting in this respect, your kids will outgrow your authority but they will never outgrow your influence. Here's another one. Satan doesn't have 
authority. But can I tell you, he doesn't really need it. What Satan wants is influence. Satan wants music, entertainment. He wants the voice of Hollywood and the voice of media and social media. He wants to own your child's heart. He wants to own your mind with influence. So much of what Mark, I'm amazed how God puts things together, but so much of what Mark is teaching us about managing our our world internally, this is the application of it externally. So taking the baseball bat of authority and whacking on behavior alone totally ignores the thinking and the emotions that are driving the behavior. So when all, the only tool you have to use is authority, you're missing the point of how the authority is even supposed to be used. The goal here is to get below the behavior into the thinking and the emotions and build a case with love and instruction. My son, give me thy heart. I give you good doctrine. Teaching those we lead how to do this, but, but more than that, turn to those you lead and ask yourself this. Am I stewarding my influence? Or am I simply trying to leverage my authority? And remember this, if you want to get anything done in ministry world, if you want to get anything done, it all happens through influence. It all happens by love. Authority is a part of it, but there's a much bigger toolbox than just authority. So our our key principle here is influence really does trump authority. How did Paul make a pervasive and a dramatic difference? He, he functioned in his authority, but in a way that was cred- authentic, credible, incredibly influential, and then deferential to the highest authority. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit enrichmentretreat.com.